0: Uh, in uh, in In his Gospel and in the book of Acts, uh, Luke, our author, has set out to give us, uh, as he says, certainty concerning the things that you, Theophilus, have been taught about what Jesus accomplished and continues to accomplish. he He had uh, set out to write a a two-part series uh, on what Jesus was doing. He knew that there were other accounts of it. Uh, He wanted to write his own account, and he's writing it for this person named Theophilus. And uh, in the Gospel of Luke, part one, Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until he ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. And that implies that the second part, the book of Acts, is a record of all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension. Of course, not being present on earth after his ascension, he did this work recorded for us in Acts through his spirit at work in normal, everyday people like the disciples were who were fishermen and uh, a tax collector and other normal, everyday men who just said, here I am, Lord, and answered the call of Christ. Acts tells us how Uh, Christ has brought his church into being and continues to build it up. And how does he accomplish uh, this work? Well, the record so far, as we have seen in Acts, has been that uh, the church has begun and has grown exponentially. And this has raised the ire of the religious leaders uh, of the day, and so they began to persecute the church of Christ. We read about that a few weeks ago. And after persecution boils over in Jerusalem, where the movement uh, has its beginnings, the, the disciples spread out, those followers of Christ spread out into the countryside, fleeing into Judea and ultimately into Samaria, uh, with the gospel on their tongues. They're talking about Jesus to people they encounter. And the church continues to grow. They even go to Gentiles like the Ethiopian eunuch that we looked at uh, two weeks ago. So, even persecution cannot halt the gross growth of the church, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. His cause cannot fail no matter how powerful an opponent comes against it. So in our text today, we see that the most violent opponent of of the church will not prevail against it. In fact, Jesus Christ turns the tables on him, Saul, also called Paul, and he becomes the greatest missionary uh, for the church the world has ever so let's read now uh, Acts 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asking him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word to us this morning. The question for us as we approach this text today is... uh, are you available? You know, that uh, text might have, uh, that, that question might have uh, different connotations in different contexts. But for Christians, it's a very important question. Are you available? And we want to think a little bit about that today as we uh, delve into our, and continue our study of the books of Acts that tells us how Christ brought his church into being and how he continues even today to build it up. Well, how does he accomplish this? Well, the events recorded for us here in Acts 9 are among the greatest events in the history of the church and even in world history. If you think about it, the influence Paul has had is surpassed only by his Lord and ours, Jesus Christ. Luke thought this episode in the life of Paul, his conversion, was so important that he actually gives the details of it three times. In the book of Acts, here in chapter 9, in chapter 22, where Paul is arrested uh, by, by the Jews, and then in chapter 26 when he appears before King Agrippa. But his life did not begin on this particular trajectory, which we will delve into now. I want to make three points this morning, and, and these are the points. I'll give them to you ahead of time so you can kind of know where we are But first of all, Jesus Christ has enemies, first point. Second point, Jesus Christ converts enemies. And then finally, Jesus Christ converts enemies to become his instruments. That's what we're going to be talking about today as we consider our availability to Christ as he builds up his church, his kingdom on earth. Well, first, Jesus Christ has enemies and, and none greater than Paul, or Saul, as he's called here. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. But Paul uh, was, was a Jew, uh, and he was born uh, not in Israel, but uh, in what is now southern Turkey in a town called Tarsus. But he was brought up in Jerusalem. He had a rigorous Jewish education which he fully embraced under uh, another Pharisee named Gamaliel, which we'll talk about in a moment. And he describes him himself in his letter to the Philippians this way, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul describes himself in that way. Uh, Let's break it down a little bit. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That kind of forms a unit there, if you will. His parents were obviously practicing Jews. They were following the law, uh, 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 the the covenant of circumcision. Uh, His ancestors, he tells us, were of the tribe of Benjamin, Uh, That was a good tribe to be from because uh, it was one of the two tribes that composed the southern kingdom of Judah. And, of course, Judah historically was a bit more faithful than the ten northern tribes of Israel. So he was of one of those two tribes. He describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, and that's a, a Jewish way or a Hebrew way of saying he was just about the best Hebrew he could be. You know, we, we look at the Song of Solomon, that book. The actual Hebrew title of the, of the, uh, the Song of Solomon is the, the Song of Songs. It's the Shir Shirim, as it is in Hebrew. It's the best song, it's the greatest song. Well, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the, the best Hebrew you could be. And he goes on and he says, As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the strictest party of the, of the Jewish religion. Uh, They were serious about upholding their scriptures as they understood them. Now, of course, Jesus exposed the Pharisees, and of course, when you call someone a Pharisee today, you mean they're a hypocrite, and it's not a very nice thing to say about someone. It's not a very good thing to be uh, a a Pharisee, as we understand from how Jesus exposed them. Uh, you know they were hypocrites because they were overly strict. They were actually more strict than the scriptures in, in in some sense, but being at heart sinners like all of us, they couldn't meet the standard they claimed to uphold, and they found shortcuts, shortcuts around it. But they held it over the people, and they were perceived at the time as really serious, dedicated, super spiritual people. Every mother would love for her son to be a Pharisee in the first century. You wouldn't want that today. So don't uh, wish for that for your children. But Paul's mom probably was very proud of him, that he was a Pharisee, and very serious and zealous, he says. He was so zealous for his beliefs, he says, that he persecuted the church. Now that seems odd to us who are part of the church, why uh, zeal would cause you to persecute the church, but uh, these followers of Jesus who had sprung up inside the Jewish faith, you know, uh, Peter and James and John and so forth, and the others who were, who were proclaiming Christ, they were perceived by Paul to be an error. He thought they were dead wrong. And he states in chapter 26, as he shares his testimony before Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted persecuted them, even to foreign cities. So Paul was so firm in his beliefs that he was willing to kill people who opposed his beliefs. That's how zealous he was for what he believed. Now Paul goes on also to describe himself not only uh, as, a, as a, a very good Hebrew and a, a, a very zealous person, but he says as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul didn't say that he was simply legalistic. Uh, the NIV translates Philippians 3, 6, that way. It says legalistically righteous. But that is, that is not what he says. He, he's, he actually says that he kept the law, that he was blameless. No normal human being with a sin nature could have been any more righteous than Paul was. That's what he's saying there. He, he was basically saying he was the pinnacle of, of law-keeping and righteousness Uh, as any human without a sin nature could be. Of course, Christ didn't have a sin nature, being fully God and fully man, so he did not uh, uh, supersede Christ in that respect. But everybody else, Paul was claiming, yes, I was very, very, very righteous. A good person. He didn't break the law. So Paul was religious, zealous. He was a righteous person who, who was an enemy of Christ. In fact, he was so violently opposed to Christ as one could be. He himself said in his letter to the Galatians that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was as much an enemy of Christ as a person could be. That's the point I'm making. That's the point he was making. Now, Paul's teacher was a man named Gamaliel, as we mentioned before. We actually encountered him back in chapter 5 when, the, when uh, Peter and John and the others had been arrested. And the Sanhedrin was in a rage against the disciples for preaching Christ in Jerusalem. And Gamaliel stood up as they were considering putting these guys to death. And he said, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. I'm sure Paul himself heard those words as he was one of those who cast his vote as part of the Sanhedrin against those people who were accused of being Christians. It says there that they took Gamaliel's advice, but they didn't take it very long because, of course, by the time chapter 7 rolls around, they are fully persecuting Christians. Paul found himself not only persecuting Christians, but as Gamaliel stated, he found himself opposing God himself. So, what does this tell us about ourselves as human beings? You know, we think Paul, you know, Paul was a superstar. You know, he was uh, somebody who impacted history. But you and I are just normal people. But it tells us this first of all, or second, third of all, tells us you can be a religious person and still be lost. Paul was a religious person, but he was opposing God. It tells us that you can be a, a zealous person, but still be wrong. You know, Many people today say it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you really believe it, as long as you are zealous for it and you're faithful to your beliefs. There are many ways up the mountain, and it doesn't matter how you get there. But you can be a zealous person and still be wrong. Paul was zealous, but he was wrong. He was on the wrong side. The same is true for us. You can be a righteous person like Paul and still be alienated from God because Paul was a righteous person. He was good. Anybody who looked at his life would find nothing. It's not like uh, many of the politicians today. You know, they look good, and then, of course, the the press will go and dig up dirt on them somewhere from their past, uh, almost to a ridiculous point. But Paul, you could dig and dig, and you couldn't find anything. He was a righteous person, but he was alienated from God, and that can be true of us as well. Paul was righteous, he was zealous, he was a religious person, all those things and more, but alienated from God. Well, some people say, well, I'm not like Paul. I'm not a violent extremist, not out trying to kill people. But the Bible makes it clear in Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, Isaiah, the Psalms, and we could go on and on, that human beings are naturally hostile towards God. We have a sin nature that basically wants to make ourselves God in his place. We want to be the Lord, not submit to the Lord. Like Paul, we are by nature's enemies of Christ. But there's good news here, you know, that's kind of a downer. We and Paul are enemies of Christ. but The good news is Christ converts his enemies. Paul was an extreme enemy of Christ, but he was not beyond Jesus' reach or power. That is really great news. No one is beyond Jesus' reach. No one can overpower the power Jesus has to change a person. It doesn't matter if they're running in the complete opposite direction like Paul was. So keep praying for people. Keep praying for that family member that's lost and and seems to be so far from the kingdom. Keep reaching out to people with the gospel of Christ. You you don't know when Christ is going to shine the light right into their face and call them to himself. Keep sharing the love of Christ in your lives. Don't give up. Now here's why. Obviously, Paul was not out looking to become a Christian. He was doing quite the opposite. But that did not stop Jesus from crashing into his world. In Paul's case, Christ got his attention with a bright light and a voice from heaven while he traveled the road to Damascus. But there may have been more to it than that. As he shares his testimony to Agrippa in chapter 26, he not only says that Jesus' voice comes, I spoke to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Jesus went on and said, uh, it, is a, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that's a, you know, a strange statement for Jesus to make to Paul. But the word goad there would uh, refers to a stick with a sharp metal point that has its modern-day equivalent in the cattle prod. That's what a goad was. It was for moving the oxen along. You poked them and got them to go where you wanted them to go. So he is apparently, Paul, being prodded by Christ before he comes to this place where he's blinded by the light on the road to Damascus. The word hard, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It doesn't mean difficult. It means hardening. It means to dry out and become hard. So in other words, uh, Paul was being prompted by Christ, prodded by Christ, and Paul was resisting, hardening his heart against the Lord. We don't know exactly what that prodding or prompting uh, of Christ was. Maybe it was the preaching of the apostles as they stood in Jerusalem and proclaimed Christ day after day. Maybe it was the testimony of the martyr Stephen. We know that Paul was present when Stephen was stoned to death and Stephen preached to the people uh, before he was stoned and even as he was being stoned. Whatever it was, Paul was resisting it, but he could not ultimately resist Christ. Christ converted this hardened, violent, extreme enemy Of Christ. Now, if he can convert Paul, he can convert you or anyone else for that matter. Is Christ prodding you today? Has he been prodding you? Is he trying to get your attention? Well, resisting will only harden your heart. So I want to enjoin you to respond to Christ. Paul did. And he shares it in Philippians after he gives us the pedigree that we discussed. He was all those Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee and a a very righteous person. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul made a decision in favor of an irresistible force that confronted him. He could not say no, because when he weighed it out, You know, all that righteousness and zeal and religion that he had, it seemed like garbage compared to Christ. When Christ confronts him, he says, Who are you, Lord? He thought Jesus was dead. But he's now confronted with a living Christ and has to reevaluate the claims made by Stephen and the other apostles. If Jesus is alive, then there is nothing to do but abandon all schemes to get God through your own religiosity, zeal, and righteousness. Paul threw it all away and embraced Christ when confronted by him. What about you? Have you seriously considered the living Christ and his claims? Paul saw it for himself and was convinced. He encountered Christ personally. Jesus says, like you and I, who don't see Christ personally, and we don't see him Physically, he generally doesn't appear to people like he appeared to Paul. He said to the disciples, Blessed are the ones who do not see, but still believe. Now here's the promise from Paul himself. He said, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die There is only hope in Christ, and he can convert even the most hardened enemy with his grace and power. Well, conversion is just the beginning. Jesus has a plan for Paul's life. Just briefly, uh, Jesus Christ converts enemies to become his instruments. Uh, verse 10 jumps to a new scene to a disciple named Ananias. He, this is a different Ananias than the one who was married to Sapphira and who was struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. The Ananias here in our text is described by Paul in chapter 22 as a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there in Damascus. So he wasn't a real famous person. He's never mentioned again in the New Testament. Uh, he disappears from view. And this man, Ananias, receives a vision from the Lord one day. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord proceeds to tell him to do something crazy. He says, Ananias, I want you to go down to a house on Straight Street and look for this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And he's, he's kind of expecting you. And, of course, Ananias says, Saul of Tarsus, uh, Lord, aren't, aren't you surely, surely you're aware of what he does to your followers, that he wants to even do evil to them. But the Lord said to him, go, because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias goes. He's available to go. And the result is a watershed moment in in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul is converted. And the gospel goes forth through him to the nations. Paul writes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the majority of the New Testament. The impact Christ has through Paul is still prevalent today. Jesus was not exaggerating when he said that Paul was his chosen instrument. He accomplishes and still accomplishes so much through the apostle Paul. Ananias, on the other hand, as we said, was not heard from again in the Bible. But what an important role he filled. He, too, was a chosen instrument. And we should take note of this. Jesus Christ uses his converts. They are his instruments. You and I, who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord, we are his instruments. And sometimes he uses people in a very visible, public way, like Paul. Paul on a very grand scale, as you might measure it. But sometimes he uses people behind the scenes, like Ananias, who appear and disappear, but the impact he has is great. You you think of someone like Billy Graham, who has had a, a tremendous impact preaching the gospel. But there's a lesser known story of the person who led him to the Lord. What an impact that person had by sharing the gospel with, with uh, Billy Graham. And then he goes and proclaims it to thousands upon thousands of people, millions even of people. Well, Ananias is like that. He said, here I am, Lord. And he went, made himself available to do something kind of crazy, to go and talk to this man named Paul. Well, Jesus has the power to convert people, and he has instruments he uses. Normal people like you and me who say, here I am, Lord. I'll conclude by saying uh, a little story about a friend of mine, a person I worked with when I was in England, David Cross and his wife, Barbara. Hopefully, I'll get David and Barbara down. there in Pennsylvania. They've retired from the ministry. Uh, but David and Barbara were missionaries, and hopefully you'll meet them, and you'll see that they're just normal people like you and me who said, Here I am, Lord. In 1970, they went to Australia to Uh, work with the aborigines and there was an old missionary lady there and she wasn't uh, too ready for a change or to be replaced and so she kind of resisted the work a little bit and so they went and planted a church somewhere else uh, in a neighboring town with some people who wanted to have a faithful gospel preaching church and they went and did that and continued to reach out to the aborigines and they ended up planting a church there as well and then another church and another church until a denomination was formed that exists today that has missionaries going out into Southeast Asia. So David and Barbara had a a tremendous impact from 1970 to the early 80s, 81, 82, and they came back to the United States. The PCA called them to plant a church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which they did for 10 years, planted a church there, and that church is still going, going strong. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, they were called to go to England because there was another denomination trying to form, needing some help, needing his expertise. And again, he and Barbara said, here I am, Lord. And they went to England, and they started a church there. And they I met him in 1998 or so, and uh, he asked me to come help him. And, and we said, sure, here I am, Lord, and, and we went. And we planted a church there, and now that denomination today has... 11, 12 churches, and it's continuing to plant churches. But David and Barbara are just normal people who said, Here I am, Lord. And I don't know if there's anybody else in the world that has planted a church on three different continents. That's amazing. When you, when you encounter these people, they're just normal people like you and me. So I want to encourage us today to make our prayer, Here I am, Lord. First of all, here I am, Lord. Change my heart. Grant me repentance, grant me faith. Help me, to, help me to see, take the scales off my eyes. Uh, Lord, here I am to be whatever you would have me to be, to be your instrument, to do whatever you want me to be, whether it uh, is something on a grand scale or something very small. Whatever I can do, Lord, here I am. Let's pray together.